morning. Hi. Um, welcome, everyone. If you're coming on, hopefully people will come on in the next couple of minutes, but I thought we'd get started on the householding task. I'm Dr. Ann Sullivan, the Chief Academic Officer um, and Designated Institutional Official for Baptist Memorial Medical Education. Welcome, everyone, to 2021 and the new year and today's grand round. Uh, we're very excited to have our COVID-19 update by Dr. Stephen Threckheld and Dr. Jillian Foster. Um, before I turn it over to our first speaker, there are a few housekeeping items to cover. Um, during today's presentations, attendees will be in listen-only mode and their video is turned off. The meeting will be recorded and archived in HealthStream for future viewing, so please allow two weeks to get access. You can access the meeting guide via the link in the chat panel. If you don't have the chat panel on your screen, just click on the chat icon on the bottom right of your meeting window to open. Next, we'd love to hear from you during the presentation. If you have any questions for our guest speakers, please submit them through the Q&A panel. Simply type your question into the dialog box and click the send button or enter. If you don't see the Q&A panel, uh, click the three-dot icon in the meeting controls at the bottom right of your screen to show more options and select Q&A. We will be answering questions at the end of the session. If we don't get to your questions during today's webinar, we'll be sure to follow up afterwards. Finally, after the webinar has ended, you will receive an email from WebEx with a link to complete the post-activity evaluation. Please provide us feedback on your experience with this live webinar so we can improve on our future online activities. After submitting your response, you will be provided access to an online continuing education certificate to save for your records. If you experience any technical difficulties assessing, accessing the online survey or certificate, please email capital C as in cat, E as in elephant, O as in ostrich, D as in dog at bmhcc.org. Finally, I would like to take a moment to share some information um, that's really exciting for those of you who may not have accessed this opportunity yet. This is the Right Carrot Baptist, which is a podcast series. So you can go into your podcast, little icon on your phone, and download the Right Carrot Baptist. This is hosted by Baptist Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Henry Sullivant, and Chief Medical Information Officer, Dr. Jake Lancaster. This series is designated to educate providers across all specialties. Important and timely clinical information is discussed with experts across the Baptist system covering topics such as ICU care of COVID-19 patients and the EMM code, excuse me, EMM code changes that were effective as the beginning of this month. Um, for more information about the series, visit the Right Care at Baptist podcast website by typing the link on your screen into your browser or scanning the QR code with your smartphone camera. And this is right there what you can see right now. Also, um, there is a Connect the Dots that will be coming further, which is about health systems led by Skip Stewart. This is also very good, and so please look for that as well. Without further ado, I'd like to kick off by welcoming our first guest speaker, who is probably known to many of you, Dr. Stephen Threckheld. He's become quite famous recently, at least being on TV here locally in Memphis. Um, Dr. Threckheld is a third-generation Memphian the physician. He is a 1986 graduate of Rhodes College, also working in Dr. Robert Webster's St. Jude Lab conducting research in virology and molecular biology of pandemic influenza, very, very forward-thinking at that point. From there, he entered medical school at University of Alabama, after which he went on to an internal medicine residency at the same place. After serving a chief medical resident for an additional year, he completed his infectious disease fellowship at Mass General and Harvard Medical School. He was an instructor at Harvard Medical School and carried out research in the virology and immunology of HIV infection. Since 1997, he has been an infectious disease, an infectious disease clinical practice with his brother, Dr. Michael Threckheld and Dr. Imad Omer here in Memphis, much to our uh, great um, benefit. He is the Medical Director of Infectious Diseases for Baptist Memorial Healthcare, the System Chair for Antibiotic Stewardship, and serves as Infectious Disease Physician for Baptist Heart Transplant Program. He is the past president of the Baptist Memphis Medical Staff. He also serves on the American Board of Internal Medicine Education Committee that oversees the creation of Infectious Disease Board Certification Exam. He is the husband to Ginger and father to two children, Colin and Blair. So without further um, 
saying, please welcome our very own Dr. Steve Threckel. Despite a uh, somewhat uh, interesting task to summarize uh, COVID-19 in 20 minutes, I, I told my wife last night it was like packing an overnight bag for a month vacation in Siberia. So uh, we will get to it uh, and, and try, have to skip over a few things, but try to be very practical if we can. I do have to make the statement, um, since I am on the uh, board committee to create the infectious disease exam, uh, I am compelled to say at the beginning of talks that no none of those specific questions will be shared during uh, during this talk. So. With that, um, let's go into uh, into COVID-19. Um, this will be uh, a graph that everybody's familiar with showing the uh, the death rate and deaths in this uh, infection over time. We had the peak in spring, it went down in the summer, and I remember very clearly people saying, well, why didn't it go down in the, why didn't it go away in the summer? And I recall saying to people, well, maybe this is going away. M maybe this is as good as it gets, and we're gonna see a real problem when it gets into the cooler weather, and of course, um, not news to anyone that that's what we've seen. Um, so uh, I'm not going to go any further with graphs or charts or so forth, because basically I'd be wasting valuable time to convince people uh, that this is really bad. And hopefully everyone who's been awake for the last nine months uh, will know that already. I simply summarize the epidemiology with, uh, with this particular slide. It is a semi uh, coming at the US in both parties with vaccines in the other lane. And uh, one says to the other, we do plan to swerve at the last minute, right? Uh, and we're sort of in the last minute with the virus coming at us at increasing speeds with increasing difficulties, but with that vaccine just out of our reach. Here's a summary of therapy. Uh, I'll do a little better than this later, but uh, this shows many of the things that have come at us over time. And some have come into favor, out of favor, back and forth. But the sum total of their uh, of their utility to us is basically twofold. Number one is to prevent. Number two is to ameliorate uh, the state of dramatic immune activation uh, that damages us later uh, in the situation, in, in the infection. And basically, we're trying to stave off this state of cytokine storm where lungs are destroyed, other uh, multi-organ system failure events occur, uh, and that's when we just have to throw uh, immunosuppressants at the situation. It really is a post-infection sort of situation in most, uh, in most of our patients. Now, no fear, we're not going to go through this and talk about NF-kappa B cells and, and interleukin-18 and the like. So the, uh, the, then the summary of our molecular biology end of this is going to be this. Uh, and that's pretty much what we see with cytokine storm. You think you're safe in your car, then the cow is flying at you. And, and by then, it's just too late. Uh, and, and as in tornadoes or hurricanes and all, uh, the worse the winds are, the more planks and boards there are to pick up at the end. And the immune system can sometimes get very carried away by that. Um, and like the guy who has an intruder in his house, he loads up the rock salt in his shotgun. But instead of taking out the intruder, he takes out the dog and the coffee table and the pictures on the wall. And that's really what cytokine storm does to us. And what we want to do, of course, is to prevent that in the first place. If it occurs, we want to do things that then suppress the immune system that has gotten really out of whack and pointing in the wrong directions. So I want to really focus in and answer a few simple questions that are practical, namely the ones that I get posed most to me during the course of the day. Number one is simply where can I get up to date and sourced information on the topic at hand? Number two, what and more importantly, maybe what not to do with patients uh, at the early level of this infection at home, for example, because let's face it, most of our patients are in fact in that situation. They are at home. They don't mostly get in, admitted to the hospital to their worst sort of situations. Next, who should get monoclonal antibodies? Where and how? Uh, next, what about remdesivir? It's sort of the, how exactly to use that drug is not very clear. And I have a lot of questions about that. And then finally, when can I come out? So where can I get up-to-date source information? This is a brief uh, answer, um, but a lot of people use up-to-date in just about everything for medical questions and answers these days. But, but what up-to-date and others will, will likely quote a lot of is this, and this is simply the COVID-19 National Institutes of Health Treatment Guidelines. This is the intro page to that site. It is very nicely put together uh, that answers the questions about the various and sundry possible treatments, what to give, what not to give, when to give it. Here is an example of one of the charts on that page. Uh, you can see things broken down into the disease uh, status, the state of the disease, 
and then the panel recommendations uh, of what they are. So it's very, very helpful. Um, and, you know, we're going to spend very little to no time on this state, the, the hospitalized and requiring invasive mechanical uh, ventilation, ECMO, because all we have proven is dexamethasone. We're in the, we're in the stoppage of a malfunctioning immune system mode by that time. Now, there, it can be more complicated. There are some newer medicines, baricitinib, that can be given with remdesivir, and time doesn't really permit us to talk about that much today, but certainly can answer more questions about it later. Moving on then, what and what not to do with patients at home, because this is what we face in most folks. Uh, despite huge mortalities nationally, indeed, the percentage of people who have to be hospitalized and who die from this is actually fairly low, something that's taken advantage of in some people when they discuss this. It's still a tremendously horrible mortality rate all told because simply so many people had it. But this is the first part of that graph or that scheme that we just saw a second ago, and that's the panel's recommendation based on disease severity. And basically, the answer to this is we don't know. There are insufficient data to recommend much of anything during this first stage where people might be having headaches, sweats, you know, uh, diarrhea, um, uh, muscle aches, those sorts of things. Cough, generally not so much shortness of breath, uh, frankly, because that gets us into other stages here. But um, but there is the EUA for bamlanivimab and casarivimab plus indevimab, which we will hear two four mention as the Regeneron product or double monoclonal antibody. Um, but the, what we really need to focus on this is what not to do. Dexamethasone and other steroids should not be used. And if we look at the specifics of this stage, this is what I see the most in the way of problems. The average person come in, comes into the hospital getting worse on a Medrol dose pack and on azithromycin. And these are both, in general, the wrong thing to do. And it's very important that we get that message out. Do not give routine steroids until oxygen is required. Um, the large trial out of Oxford that showed that steroids were definitively helpful, um, the recovery trial, also showed that, that uh, utilizing steroids before you need oxygen may be detrimental. It wasn't quite statistically significant, but there was a trend. It makes sense because the immune system is out to decrease the viral load and get rid of this virus as quickly as we can with as little damage as we can. Think of it as avoiding winds in the hurricane. Once the uh, winds are already too high and stay high, there are a lot of boards and planks to pick up later. And that's where the immune system can get messed up and redirected against our cells by mistake and our lung tissue and so forth. So we want that immune system unfettered and, uh, and uh, untreated with steroids in the earliest stages of this. Secondly, do not give routine antibiotics unless it is clinically indicated. Certainly, some people get secondary infections. Other people need antibiotics. But for in general, with a classic COVID-19 case, even with fever from it, those folks do not need antibiotics. Don't give hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, something that obviously has been controversial. Some small, poor studies suggested that, uh, that uh, hydroxychloroquine might be helpful. All the really good studies say that it's not. Uh, ivermectin has a little bit more data for it than hydroxychloroquine, mind you, and there are three larger control trials that are coming out by the end of the month. But still, I would say about ivermectin, there is very little in the way of data that we think it's going to be clinically effective yet. Uh, it works in the Petri dish, but so does Clorox. And unfortunately, the concentration you need in that Petri dish is about a hundredfold higher than what we approved so far when we're treating parasitic infections in humans. So in addition to inhibiting uh, the virus, it also at that concentration likely inhibits humans as well. So more to come. We may find that it works uh, in, in vivo at a lower dose, but, uh, but that, is, uh, that is not what uh, we think at least so far in the recommendation is not to utilize it. Just... Uh, Look here for a second. I'm having there we go. Secondly, um, a little technical issue here. Sorry. There. So, um, well. One second, I apologize, the slide advancer is not quite working for me. Ah, okay. So here we go. Um, back to the medications in that early stage. Um, in general, we need to leave the medications that you are on alone. HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors or statins, 
ACE inhibitors or ARBs, non-steroidals, previous uh, steroids that are already on board in someone, we need to leave them alone. Um, we have looked at those as both possible detriments that we need to stop for uh, COVID-19. We've looked at them as things that might even help COVID-19. In general, there's no evidence that either of those things is true. And in general, the recommendation is to leave those medications as they were before COVID-19 came calling. Um, interestingly, also, there are inadequate data for any recommendations on vitamin C, vitamin D, or zinc. Vitamin C uh, is interesting in that it can help with uh, it helps with oxidative uh, stressors on the body like sepsis and has been studied in some of those conditions, but data tend to be sort of difficult to interpret in those. Vitamin D, we see deficiencies in that frequently in populations where COVID-19 is the worst. People of color, obese people, people with hypertension and the rest. But there's never been really good data that's suggesting that, that really uh, treating with vitamin D prevents that or stops it. The same with zinc. Uh, can be a bit controversial, but it can lead to copper deficiency and other potential problems if it's utilized uh, in large amounts for too long. So really no recommendations for that. Um, you know, moderate uh, uh, doses of those are fine, but that we really don't exactly know. Moving on into who should get the one thing that we really do have at our disposal during this early stage and who should get monoclonal antibodies? How do you get them? Where? Et cetera. This is uh, from the uh, NIH guidelines, and it speaks to the emergency use authorization for bamlanivimab. It is just one of the two, along with the Regeneron product, of the monoclonal antibodies. Have no fear, the, uh, the indications are pretty much exactly the same. And if you look at adults over 12, um, there are just a few indications. And this is one of the most common uh, questions that I get. How do I get this? Uh, for my mother-in-law or my sister, uh, who qualifies, who does not. And it's it's fairly simple, if not always easy to decipher. Um, if you're over 65, you're good, no matter, whether, no matter what other medical conditions exist. That all by itself is a significant risk. And the idea is that these are allowed for people who have high risk of progressing to COVID-19 early on, not for someone who has standard or low risk for that. Other indications, uh, obesity to the point of BMI greater than 35, chronic kidney disease, diabetes mellitus, either immunosuppressive diseases or medications that make you immunosuppressed. Those are all indications along with a bit younger group of greater than or equal to 55 years old who have cardiovascular disease, hypertension, or other forms of chronic pulmonary disease. Those are the people. So somebody calls me with a 54-year-old who is healthy, they do not qualify. The 55-year-old with hypertension does, and that seems sort of uh, a slightly arbitrary, but the simple reality is that these underlying diseases and age are the things that make people at higher risk and, uh, and have us to give these medications. There are some reasonably impressive numbers, two-thirds to three-quarter decrease in the rate of admissions to the hospital, emergency department visits, et cetera, but there's a little bit of a problem in that the numbers are quite small, and there were no deaths, one of the other endpoints. So if a few people had gone the other direction clinically in these studies, it could have had some substantial effects on these, uh, on these outcomes and our, and our recommendations. So we still need more data, but for right now, someone who's really high risk, we certainly are giving these medications uh, right now. The side effects, pretty low, pretty much on, uh, on pace with placebo itself can be given in the hospital only in special circumstances. It really needs to be outpatient prior to worsening to need be in the hospital. If you happen to be in the hospital for something else and then you get COVID-19 and still remain at high risk, but not ill and requiring oxygen, then, it's, uh, then it can be given in that, in that situation on rare occasions. This is not, I repeat, not the standard of care. It is not wrong not to give this. Certainly a lot of people are taking advantage of it. We've given more than 150 or 60 of the doses here in our clinic. Um, and uh, there are several places you can get it. And there's a new central coordinating number of 227-7070 uh, will be the number that you use to kind of apportion these out to the different places. There are two places here that you can get it. There's one at DeSoto, there's one at Tipton, and a few others along the way uh, in emergency departments. So moving on to remdesivir, one of the more uh, frankly, mysterious agents that we use in terms of knowing exactly when to uh, when to give it. Um, and this is the rest of the graph that I showed you the top level of uh, previously from the NIH guidelines based on the degree of illness. And you'll notice that uh, it's insufficient data to utilize uh, remdesivir uh, very early on in, prog in the, the progression of this disease. 
if you move into the hospital, it stays a bit nebulous in folks who are uh, maybe uh, hospitalized, requiring, sub, uh, requiring supplemental oxygen, but not terribly ill. Uh, if it's just minimal supplemental oxygen, uh, you can use remdesivir, you can use steroid plus remdesivir, uh, preferably using the dexamethasone once they require steroid. Um, and then uh, as you move down the severity scale, once they get sicker and require more oxygen, remdesivir is still on the list, probably not so helpful once you get uh, invasive uh, therapy, mechanical ventilation, ECMO and the like. Uh, not as, as tremendously helpful in those circumstances, with the one exception that I will merely point out, and that is uh, with the baricitinib uh, jack inhibitor, and it has to be used in combination uh, with remdesivir. And I won't comment on that unless somebody has a particular question because it's a pretty specialized issue and also is a drug that's approved to treat complicated rheumatoid arthritis, but we're just gaining data on that with, uh, with more advanced. And it's almost on par with something like a tocilizumab that was used for a while for this infection, but that particular drug didn't really pan out. So then the summary about remdesivir, um, it was a, there was a large NIH trial called the ACTT trial, and you had to have abnormal chest X-ray, you had to have a low oxygen or be on a ventilator, ECMO, but 1,062 patients were entered into that trial. And it had no real impact on the mortality from this infection, which was sort of disappointing because it is the only FDA-approved new medication for this infection. But it's important to point out that the, that the study wasn't powered to detect subgroup differences. So there were a few people that might have had some, some uh, improved mortality. We just couldn't say for sure because, uh, because it wasn't powered to look at that. It did cut the duration of illness, however, from 15 to 10 days. No small uh, maneuver when you're looking at hospital bed crunches, uh, personnel crunches all across the country and the world. So for that reason, um, the NIH has recommended its use in these sorts of circumstances. It's greater if it's used earlier on, fewer than 10 days from the onset of symptoms. And the serious side effects are really similar to placebo. As I say, it's approved in hospitalized patients and you need to monitor the creatinine clearance and liver function tests, particularly the ALT, can rise if it rises tenfold or has clinical findings of liver troubles that needs to be stopped or not started in the first place in that situation. And also monitoring the INR. It's not for people under creatinine cl uh, clearance of 30, and the course is five to 10 days. I might make one point out the fact that the World Health Organization did not recommend its use simply because uh, it did not show any mortality benefit in a large, large study that the WHO put together. But it's also important to point out that their study was not powered or indicated to show this decreased duration of illness that the NIH studies were. And that's why the NIH said, despite a clear benefit from mortality, we're still utilizing it for the duration of illness uh, indication and so forth. And then finally, I'll talk uh, for a moment about when can I come out? And this is nothing more than a very quick six slide uh, power uh, maneuver through some CDC slides uh, about isolation and quarantine. It's something that we talk about a lot, but I still get a lot of questions uh, from doctors about this. And it's really nicely put together in some of the CDC slides. The uh, first is that people who've been in close contact with someone who has COVID-19 are the people that need to be quarantined in the first place. You got to know who to go in before who can come out. Um, and that excludes people, however, who have had the infection within the last 90 days or three months. We presume that they are immune, and so they do not have to be quarantined or to be retested if they have had such recent infection with COVID-19. And that's an important situation for healthcare workers. They've had the, uh, the infection, they're back on the job, and they might have an exposure. We don't need to lose them again for another 14 days because they are presumed to be immune if they happen to have something of an exposure. What counts as close contact, and not to belabor these points, but if you're within six feet of someone who has COVID-19 for a total of 15 minutes, then you have been exposed. Providing home, uh, care at home to someone who's sick. Um, if you've had direct physical contact, like hugging or kissing someone. If you've shared eating or drinking utensils. Uh, one of the common thing is that if you don't even do that, but you might be in a small closet-sized break room at work, uh, take your masks off and eat lunch for half an hour, that is an exposure even if you don't uh, use the same utensils. And then finally, someone who sneezed, coughed, or otherwise got respiratory droplets on you or in your face. You should stay at home and monitor for 14 days after your last contact with a person who had COVID-19. and Watch, obviously, for symptoms uh, such as cough and shortness of breath or other things. And obviously, also, if possible, stay away from other people who are at higher risk for getting sick from COVID-19. Notice that I put the 14 days on there because it still is 14 days. 
newly uh, minted are the recommendations that you can do fewer than 14 days. This is nothing more than an admission by the uh, CDC that nobody is going to do the 14 days apparently the way they should and the numbers large enough for it to be helpful. And unfortunately, it's a little like saying, you know, uh, to your six-year-old, listen, you should eat your vegetables, but if it's really too much of a stress for you, here's how you can eat birthday cake instead. Um, it's not quite that bad, but but we, we've sort of bent a little bit on this. And though it still recommends 14 days, it says that if you have been 10 days, even if you don't test, or if you've been seven days and had a negative test on at least day five or later, it, it is the case that the vast majority of patients will have become ill or at least infected and contagious by that time uh, if, uh, if they really have been exposed and are going to get ill. So that's really where that came from is to admit that we probably will not lose too many cases if we cut it down and we may get a lot better adherence to the recommendations in people uh, throughout the country and so forth. In stopping quarantine, uh, you should obviously be, uh, be symptom-free. Um, let me, sorry, there. Um, and obviously, if you have symptoms for the balance of those 14 days, if you're taking the shorter course here, you should immediately self-isolate again and contact uh, for testing and the like. And also, you should obviously wear your mask at all times if you're cutting short of that 14 days. Uh, avoid crowds, wash your hands. Be smart about not exposing someone else in case you're one of those very small group of people that do actually come down with the disease after 14 days of exposure. If you have had COVID-19 and you had symptoms, you need to be down and away from people for 10 days since those symptoms first appeared or from a positive test if you happen to be one of those who's asymptomatic. So 10 days, it, the studies have shown that you don't even give it to people you live with after six or seven days. So 10 days is a bit of a buffer there. You also though need to be 24 hours without fever and that without taking Tylenol, Motrin and the like, without antipyretics. And your other symptoms should be improving. Where we see some confusion here is that the loss of taste and smell may last for a long time. You don't have to be well, you don't have to be feeling fine and up to your uh, general level of energy. You just have to be improving in afebrile at 10 days. But I will say this does not apply to people who are severely ill, and it doesn't take that much to be severely ill. Needing oxygen and the like is enough to call severely ill, or if you are immunocompromised. And so in those groups, that goes out to as much as 20 days of isolation. We see this in the hospital a lot because a lot of people are on oxygen. A lot of people are sick enough to be in the hospital will need that 20-day isolation period because they may uh, excrete the virus longer. Uh, and that's just uh, summarized again on this slide, which I will skip for, uh, for uh, time's sake. So my last slide really uh, is, uh, this is a picture of uh, the messenger RNA uh, platform of vaccines. And this is a spoiler alert. Jillian is going to talk here in a moment about, among other things, uh, messenger RNA vaccines. This merely shows these lipid nanoparticles who are that are endocytosed into cells. They break out with the delicate mRNA, which is then transcribed with our ribosomes as if they were genes for brown eye color or height or whatever it would be. And they mistakenly, on our direction, uh, print out these therapeutic proteins, in this case, spike proteins uh, from the coronavirus. I show this slide not for its own value today because this is not a slide for coronavirus. This is a slide that I gave in March of 2017 and the last time I gave medical grand rounds on Zika virus as this was being studied uh, even then. Moderna is a company that started in 2010 for the sole purpose of making messenger RNA vaccines. So the point of this is, in addition to being the segue to Jillian's talk, uh, is that this is not a new concept. It's not even newly tested. It's been going on for years uh, with a lot of good data behind it. Uh, and we can see it's no coincidence that these are the first two vaccines that have come out with 95% uh, effectiveness and no deaths after millions of doses now. It's an extraordinary accomplishment, uh, one that is nearly unequaled. So with that, I will stop. Thanks for your attention, and I will turn it back over uh, to Anne. Okay, so thank you very much, Dr. Trackeld, as always, very informative. Next, we have another one of our great Baptist uh, resources, um, Dr. Jillian Foster, who is a PharmD, MBA, Fellow of the American College of Health Executives, and FASHP, which I'm not sure, I'm maybe health pharmacist, is currently the System Pharmacy Service Line Administrator for Baptist Memorial Healthcare Corporation. She provides strategic direction to the BMHTC pharmacy teams 
at the Baptist hospitals, infusion centers, retail pharmacies, home infusion, mail order, specialty pharmacy, and across our three states of Mississippi, Tennessee, and Arkansas. Jillian graduated from the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy after completing a health policy fellowship with the United States Senator Thad Cochran. She also completed a pharmacy practice residency, PGY1, and a specialty residency, PGY2, with an emphasis in pharmacy management and administration at North Mississippi Medical Center in Tupelo. She has an MBA from the University of Mississippi. She worked in Tupelo as the pharmacy benefits manager before moving to Oxford as the director of pharmacy for Baptist Memorial Hospital, North Mississippi, which was great for Baptist, I have to say. She later held leadership positions in the Baptist Medical Group and the Baptist Cancer Center before moving to the corporate office. Jillian has served on the Phi Lambda Sigma National Executive Committee as parliamentarian. She is past president of the Mississippi Pharmacists Association and the Mississippi Society of Health System Pharmacy. She is currently serving as president of the Mississippi Board of Pharmacy. She and her husband, Doug, live in Olive Branch, Mississippi, and enjoy many church, community, and sports activities with their three young children. So again, welcome, Jillian. Thank you, Dr. Sullivan, and thank you, Dr. Threlkel. Good transition. Um, that was a great overview by Dr. Threlkel, and um, now I hope to give you just some practical information. I know you all have read a lot and are getting a 1,000 questions a day on the COVID-19 vaccine, and so hopefully um, some of this will be a refresher or a succinct way to kind of give you some talking points about some of the frequently asked questions. So what we'll do um, here in just a few um, quick minutes is we'll do an overview um, of Operation Warp Speed and the process of the COVID-19 vaccine approvals. We will look um, a little bit at the safety, efficacy, and side effects. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the distribution process. Certainly that has had some challenges, and we'll talk about what is next to come. So what is Operation Warp Speed? Um, this is the public-private partnership. It was initiated by the U.S. government um, to facilitate um, and accelerate the development and manufacturing and distribution of the vaccine and therapeutics and other things. Um, the partners are listed here, HHS, CDC, the DOD, BARDA, and NIH. It was founded mid-May. The goal was to deliver 300 million doses of a safe and effective vaccine by January 2021. We'll talk about how that has happened and how we're doing on that um, here in just a moment. And so how did Operation Warp Speed um, really work? And so really the key has been the financial investment that the government was able to make um, into the pharmaceutical companies to really rapidly develop um, and really manufacture ahead of time the vaccine. So typically the traditional vaccine process is that they go through the trials, which may take some time, um, then they get FDA approval, and then they manufacture. What Operation Warp Speed allowed them to do was to do that um, ahead of time and to be simultaneously in um, having those manufactured and on the shelf anticipating the FDA approval. Um, HHS was mostly involved with some of the development and manufacturing oversight. DOD and CDC were more involved preparing for the distribution. That involved securing vials, syringes, um, locking down a distributor, which was McKesson. Um, to date, Congress has directed investments of close to $10 billion for Operation Warp Speed. What does FDA approval involve for vaccines? Um, typically, um, you're used to these three phases with phase one, having some volunteers looking at safety, phase two, um, having several hundred volunteers looking at efficacy or how well it works, phase three, having many more volunteers looking at more broadly efficacy and any new safety um, events that would occur. Um, typically, as we said, this takes years. Um, Operation Warp Speed did allow the manufacturing to begin and, and be completed in some ways while this was underway. So how was it different for the COVID-19 vaccine? During the public health emergencies, we know the FDA has used the EUA process for therapies and vaccines. However, um, even during um, this EUA process for vaccines, they were looking for a, a couple of key things. That was to have at least 30,000 people in each of the studies, as well as for a vaccine to be 50% or more effective in preventing individuals from getting COVID-19 compared to those that did not receive the vaccine. Of course, that effectiveness is actually higher than our seasonal um, flu vaccine is, um, so that, that was lofty. 
will there be anticipated side effects? Um, the FDA does stop the vaccine trials if there are serious safety events. While a few patients in the COVID-19 vaccine trials did have some events, those were determined not to be related to the vaccine. You're aware that the two vaccines we have now um, are two-dose regimens. We expect, of course, the soreness at the injection site, the fatigue, achiness, headache, um, possibly the day after the vaccine. We'll look at those a, a little more um, in a moment, specifically for Pfizer and Moderna. These are, um, we think, often more pronounced with the second dose, um, less pronounced in adults 65 and over, should self-resolve or with symptomatic treatment, um, and are usually short in duration. We have vaccinated um, thousands. I'll show you some of those numbers here in a moment. We, we've done that at Baptist for our team members, and very few have reported um, the side effects to be severe enough uh, to stay at home. We know it's important um, to talk these up, to be transparent about them, let individuals know what to expect. Certainly, we wouldn't want it to discourage them from coming back for their second um, dose and to be aware of what they are as not to confuse them with any other issue going on since they should resolve quickly. Who will have access? So the CDC and the State Departments are directing the allocation of the vaccine. They are also providing guidance on how to implement the vaccine. Uh, recently, you, you all probably have seen and are aware of the ACIP guidance that was issued, and it, again, informs the process of how to roll out the vaccine um, access. So you're probably familiar with these phases. Phase 1A, healthcare workers and long-term care. 1B would be next, frontline essential workers and persons age 75 and older. I think most of our states are beginning to, to look to roll to phase 1B or some of them are, are there. The frontline essential workers includes the first responders, educators, and those that work in some key industries like food, transportation, postal. Phase 1C, 65 to 74, or 16 to 64, with these high-risk medical conditions um, of no surprise listed there, and then Phase 2, everyone else. You may be familiar um, in Phase 1A, the CDC and the states gave us even more um, direction to how to work through that first phase. You may have heard 1A1, 1A2. Uh, 1A1 was really direct patient care individuals, inpatient, ED, testing sites, home care, 1A2, move to outpatient, everyone else that works within the four walls of a healthcare facility. And so again, our entities have, are working their way through phase 1A and many of them are beginning to think about phase 1B. So what are the benefits of the COVID-19 vaccine? Um, of course, for our workforce and of course for the community, uh, many, many benefits, the ability to think about socializing in groups sooner, prevent, preventing the spread, of course, um, very important and close to home for us, safer workforce with fewer team members placed on medical furlough due to exposure. Um, we'll talk about herd immunity and what that looks like here in a moment, but it's really important even for the young, healthy, many of our employees are that. Um, it's really still important for those that may not um, have a severe case of COVID if they did get it, still important for them to get the vaccine so that they would, of course, not spread it to others that may be high risk. So here are some of the FAQs I know I've had. You probably have the same ones. I wanted to run through these um, just briefly. When will the COVID-19 vaccines need to be taken again? So of course we have some information coming forward about this. Um, we've seen some about the mutations, the variants. Um, it may be too premature um, to say exactly. Um, it, we're hopeful that those um, variations um, would still be covered by the current vaccines. I know there's some studies underway uh, perhaps the vaccines would last six months. Others have said 12. It's probably a little too early to, to say. Um, on the mutations, I know we've had some in a few states and now we're seeing in other countries um, that look to be more contagious, perhaps not more severe, um, but certainly we'll be looking for more information on that. What about pregnancy and breastfeeding? So while those individuals were not included in the trials, um, therefore, it is suggested that they visit with their healthcare provider about that. Overall, though, ACOG and others have come out very supportive and recommend that pregnant and breastfeeding individuals do get the COVID-19 vaccine, saying that the benefits would outweigh the risk. What about infertility? So based on how the mRNA vaccines work, the experts 
believe that they are unlikely to pose a risk for people who are pregnant or wanting to become pregnant later. mRNA does not interact with genetic material DNA because mRNA does not enter the nucleus. So the cells break apart the mRNA quickly. I think the concern or the rumor had been that the antibodies that attack the corona spike protein would also interfere with the protein that is critical for the development of the placenta during pregnancy. While there's no evidence to support that, I know the Society of Maternal and Fetal Medicine continues to advise pregnant individuals to take the vaccine. 23 of the Pfizer um, trial participants have become pregnant. There were a couple of poor outcomes, but those individuals did not receive the vaccine and were in the placebo group. What about additional risk for individuals with cosmetic facial fillers? So having a cosmetic uh, facial work or filler is not a reason to avoid the vaccine. There have been a couple of reports of individuals who had had a recent cosmetic facial filler experience swelling at those sites. As the body was revving up the immune response, the vaccine um, must have interacted or, or caused inflammation in those areas because of something not natural to the body had been introduced. Antihistamine and steroid were used in those individuals, and so that resolved. What about the ability to get the COVID-19 vaccine even, um, or COVID-19 even after receiving the vaccine? So of course there, there would be a small chance that an individual could get COVID-19 after the vaccine. The severity of the vaccine, of course, is thought to be, um, that would, it would be less. Um, so still, still worth getting that. The screening um, questions that we are asking, and I know um, the health departments and based on what's recommended by the CDC and the manufacturers, um, and those would include separating from other vaccines by 14 days. If an individual has received the monoclonal antibody or convalescent plasma, deferring the vaccine for 90 days. It is contraindicated if an individual has had a severe allergic reaction to the components of the vaccine, which not sure many would know that yet, um, but caution in those, not contraindicated, but caution in those who have had severe reactions to other vaccines. I know at um, the Baptist Vaccine Clinic, of course, we've had EpiPens. Um, my understanding is we've had to use that once or twice, not often for the 8,000, I think, that we've given um, now. So Dr. Threlkel showed the schematic on the mRNA. Of course, it's encoding for the SARS-CoV-2 spike glycoprotein. It delivers um, to the cells in a lipid capsule. The cells manufacture the spike protein antigen, which then stimulates the body's immune response and the production of antibodies. So what about these two? Um, you've probably seen this um, quick comparison here, but just looking at the endpoint, very similar. Pfizer for the first COVID-19 confirmation per 1,000 individuals versus Moderna, first occurrence of confirmed symptomatic COVID within the 14 days after second dose. So both met that, of course, FDA in, um, requirements of having 30,000 um, with Pfizer having a few more. Um, effectiveness, um, both right at 95%. Side effects, um, very similar. Most common was the injection soreness. Fatigue and headache, though, were also um, greater than 50%. Um, the reactogenicity, or just the subset of reaction that occurs soon after the vaccines, we know that's the physical manifestation of the inflammatory response. Very similar for both. The muscle pain and chills, greater than 30%. Um, joint pain was also listed there, greater than 30% for Moderna. Both had greater than 30% minority in their trials. I think to be exact, Pfizer's 37%, Moderna 34%. The second dose timeline, 21 days or a window there for Pfizer, about 28 days or a month for Moderna with a window there as well. And then immunity shortly after um, the second dose. I've, I've, I know we, we are um, really encouraged about even effectiveness, high effectiveness after the first dose. Um, I know just using one dose, though, is not yet recommended, nor is using half of a dose, which I know has been um, talked about, but neither of which are recommended by the FDA at this time. I want to transition um, just a moment to a little bit more on the distribution process. So you may have seen this schematic of the Pfizer and Moderna distribution process. For Pfizer, of course, with those ultra-low temperature requirements, um, it is sent directly from Pfizer to its final resting place, be that a hospital, clinic, et cetera, um, that Pfizer is sending it in the, the ultra-low totes with the appropriate 
um, dry ice and temperature monitors. Moderna, um, because it doesn't require quite the ultra-low temperatures, is sent through McKesson, the distributor, to its final resting place. Both come simultaneously or, or right behind them with a kit. We'll look at what's included in the vaccine kits um, here in a moment, um, but they come from a distributor to um, the provider location as well. Some specifics about um, the handling or storage of the two. Uh, for Pfizer, as I said, direct from Pfizer. There's five doses in the vial. You've probably read and heard um, our pharmacy teams have had um, good luck, great luck, with getting six doses pretty regularly out of each vial. The FDA did approve using that overfill from one vial. We don't pull vials together with leftover amounts from a variety of vials, but certainly we have been able to get six doses fairly consistently um, from a vial. Moderna has 10 doses per vial. I think less consistently have we been able to get 11, maybe on a few um, cases. Um, the Pfizer does require a diluent. The Moderna is already in dilution. Um, the doses are listed there. Of course, the Pfizer, the very low temperature, negative 80 to 60 degrees Celsius, the ultra low or ultra cold freezers are required for the longer term storage. Um, Moderna is stored at a regular freezer, negative 20 degrees Celsius. In the freezer, um, both are stable for six months. Pfizer at refrigerated temperature before it's diluted is five days. Moderna a little more flexible at 30 days. Um, the vial at room temp, two hours for Pfizer, 12 hours, again, a little more flexible for Moderna. And then both of them, when they're drawn up into a syringe at room temp, six hours. So in running those employee vaccine clinics. I know our teams have had a lot of logistics to prepare for getting those syringes to the teams in sort of six-hour increments. To thaw the Pfizer um, vaccine, moving it from the freezer to the fridge is a three-hour process, or freezer to room temp can be 30 minutes. For now, all of the Baptist entities that have the Pfizer vaccine, they do have the ultra-cold um, freezer. But if a location did not have the freezer, this is what their option would be because it comes in the ultra-cold shipping totes. Um, that would be an option, and that would work for 30 days where you would recharge the Pfizer tote every five days with dry ice. There is some PPE involved in the handling for the employee um, that does that. But this would give them 30 days in the totes and then another five days in the refrigerator. I mentioned the kits. And so in the vaccine kits, um, the needle, syringe, alcohol pad, mask, face shield, and the vaccine card. So um, these are important, and we're giving those to employees and will to patients too so that they can document the date, the lot, the manufacturer of their vaccine, first and second dose. These items are not in the kits, and so we, of course, would have those um, at our location. You may have heard about the vSafe program. So patients or an individual would use their, their smartphone camera, use this code, it signs them up for the vSafe program, it's put on by the CDC, and so um, after receiving the vaccine, it would um, send you information to log your experience, it would ask you about any side effects that you're having, it would do second dose reminders. Uh, my understanding is based on your answers, you would get a call from the CDC if you needed to about any of those side effects and, and what to do or, or what to think about next. So back to how is this all shaping up? So with the goal of having administered 20 million was the goal to try to have 20 million doses administered by the end of 2020. Um, 13 million were distributed, 4.2 million were administered. I think this was a, a few days back, right at the end of 2020. So perhaps there's been said to be a lag in reporting. We know the distribution process um, has had some hiccups to it. I know our three state departments are doing the best they can with allocations. They all three, Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, have different approaches on how they're allocating and helping to distribute. Um, a couple hundred thousand of those administrations have been in long-term care um, residents. I, I know they're a little behind as well, and some of the long-term care efforts are just now underway. For Baptist, we've received over 15,000 doses, have administered over 7,500, and have 8,900 uh, scheduled. So with all that, what are still the main concerns? This poll was 25,000 people. A few weeks back, 
Um, but these were kind of the main concerns reported. Um, you probably heard some of the same. <clears throat> I worry that the vaccine has been rushed. Of course, we talked about Operation Warp Speed. Um, it may not have necessarily have been the trials that feel so rushed, but certainly the manufacturing was accelerated. And so because of that funding, um, having those vials ready um, was different. I worry about the vaccine side effects. So we talked about those. It's important to be aware of those. Um, again, overall, for the thousands we've vaccinated, it has seemed to go very well, and those have been um, fairly insignificant um, as a whole. The vaccine will be too expensive. So of course, the vaccines are no cost for now. Uh, what about, I fear I would get COVID-19 from the vaccine or that it has harmful ingredients. So of course, mRNA vaccines are not live vaccines. They are not made with egg-based technology. Another one is our immune systems are strong enough to fight COVID-19 vaccine. Of course, we know with over 2,000 deaths a day, a couple hundred thousand positive tests a day, we will need something more than our immune system. Some other ones are, don't know about the effectiveness. I have a medical condition that does not allow me. So of course, high effectiveness, um, no contraindications based on medical conditions. One reported hard to find the time. Um, it is quick. There is, uh, we are doing, and I think the health departments are too, a 15 minute observation time after an individual um, is vaccinated. But other than that, um, should be quick. And then what about, I've already had COVID-19, so I don't need a vaccine. Um, so of course, um, at first, based on limited supply, we were suggesting that individuals who had had COVID-19 in the last 90 days um, wait and, and let others that may, may not have be carrying antibody get a vaccine first, um, not because it's not safe or not because it's contraindicated, but just to preserve the supply. As our supply has moved forward, uh, we now are encouraging um, everyone, even those who have had COVID-19, um, to still get the vaccine. I think recent polls are showing um, I read one poll just a few days ago. The willingness of individuals to get vaccines is really on the rise. I'm sure it's because those who have had it have, have done well and fine, so that is encouraging. So next steps, um, AstraZeneca, um, I know we saw it was approved in the UK, greater than 70% effectiveness, um, two doses, several weeks apart. <clears throat> it can be stored in the refrigerator. Um, I think the U.S., it may be a few more weeks, early spring. I think we want to see more in the 65 and up population in some of their trials. Um, Johnson & Johnson, uh, right behind it or, or right with it. Both recombinant viral vector vaccines, not messenger RNA. So again, the refrigerator storage will, will create some flexibility. Johnson & Johnson has the one-dose and a two-dose option that are being studied. So the one-dose, again, would create some flexibility. Patients. As you saw in the ACIP, right behind our healthcare workers, our patients, 75 and up, probably coming first. And so I know um, our healthcare um, entities, the state departments, maybe even community pharmacies are, are gearing up for that now. Uh, we know we'll need to see um, a, a pretty high number, 70% or more vaccinated before I think we'll see the CDC and others begin to loosen their guidelines around social distancing and masking. So a lot of information very quickly. Um, thank you for your attention and for your time today. And so Dr. Sullivan or Sabrina, we'll turn it over to you all. Hey, um, Sabrina, uh, thank you everybody. I, Sabrina, I believe has assigned some questions. So Dr. Threckholz, have you gotten some questions assigned to you to answer? Um, yeah, okay, so this is, uh, there are a couple of these. One is, uh, I'm going to go from the bottom up, would you comment on the efficacy of the vaccine created in China? Um, fewer, um, fewer of those uh, data obviously are out there. The last one I saw was about 79, 80% effectiveness in their testing. Um, it, is a, uh, it is a killed particle vaccine, not a messenger RNA vaccine. So uh, truly don't know as much about that, obviously, but it seems at least from the data that we presented that it is a, uh, that it's a reasonably, uh, reasonably effective vaccine. But again, I think a lot more to know um, about that. Um, one other, um, let's see, a couple of these may be better for Jillian related to the vaccine. Um, I guess the I'll- one about polyneuropathy, about whether you should have the vaccine if you have that diagnosis. And then sure. there was one about if you had one shot and then you get diagnosed with COVID, do you get the second shot? 
Okay, sure. So the, with the chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, um, you know, it's a complicated illness, and uh, obviously these things have not been studied. But in general, um, the recommendation has been for people with autoimmune disease to go ahead and get the vaccine. Um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, when you're talking about producing one protein of the uh, of the virus in people, you worry potentially, and it's a, it's a valid concern. Could that protein or the reaction to that protein cause an immune reaction that could be wayward uh, and attack a joint or something else? Um, the problem with the concern is that if that's the case, then won't the actual viral infection be even more of a problem than than just making one of the proteins? of the virus. So theoretically, it would be a lot riskier to get the infection. And when we're talking about 70% of the country getting the infection, if they don't get the vaccine, if that is an accurate version of what, of what herd immunity really is, then it's probably safer to get it. So for, for most autoimmune diseases in general, the recommendation has still been to get the vaccine, albeit uh, with, with less data behind that recommendation. Um, with respect to the second dose of the uh, of the vaccine after getting the, the illness, there's actually a very nice piece on this in that the CDC has just put out recently in an update to vaccines. The CDC has difficult time with this sort of thing sometimes because, as I like to, to say, I have one patient in front of me in the office. The CDC has 330 million patients in their office at any one time. And so it, sometimes it's difficult for them to come up with really black and white recommendations. But in general, Folks who have had uh, the infection could get their next dose on time as long as they have completed their 10-day uh, time of isolation and they're better and they're not febrile. They've essentially gotten out of isolation by those criteria, though uh, they are actually saying, I think appropriately, that it's, it's pretty clear that people are going to be immune for 90 days, three months. Uh, and so it is also very reasonable to wait until that long. It, it maximizes the time that you're going to be immune if you're essentially getting a booster a bit farther out. You didn't need to be boosted before then. And theoretically, it could also decrease the vaccine side effects because you know, the immune system is not very tolerant of return tourists. And if you take that too soon, much like it can be the case in the pneumococcal vaccine, you may get more swollen arm, more fevers, more headaches, those kinds of things from that sort of strategy. So it's very reasonable, though not mandatory, to wait out to 90 days before you get that second dose. Or the first dose if you're infected and haven't been vaccinated yet. Okay, um, let's see. I don't know if you saw any of the other questions or Jillian, if you wanna jump in at some of these vaccine questions. Yeah, the only other thing I would add um, to what Dr. Threlkel said is, um, I'm, I'm not aware um, of a situation where we've been advised to restart a dose. So in addition to what Dr. Threlkel said, if you've had a first dose and there may be appropriate reasons to delay, such as you've had COVID and you just wanna ride out the 90 days, or you've had monoclonal antibody or convalescent plasma, and so you wanna wait the 90 days before getting the second dose, um, we've been told by CDC and the manufacturers, do not restart the two-dose series, but pick back up with the second dose. Okay. Um, so what, I guess there is a question here about how long will the intracellular mRNA continue to produce the spike proteins? Basically, like we, do we know how long this vaccine is going to last? Well, I'll, I'll take the first tab. Um, the, the mRNA does not last too terribly long in cells. Um, it's a delicate material. That's why it's taken so long to get this uh, really uh, into the game, because these things get chewed up. Uh, the, the, the intracellular environment uh, is not hospitable to, uh, to things floating around with the proper, without proper identification. And so things get chewed up pretty quickly in that environment. So it's not a long-term production of that protein and not the kind of thing that you have to worry about. Um, and again, people worry about, just as, as another side of that, um, people worry about long-term side effects of the vaccine. It's important to point out that, that vaccine side effects are historically, in every instance, upfront side effects. Now, that may last long-term in some people. It certainly can happen. Um, but the idea that people are waiting around to see if there are any long-term side effects of the vaccine, they're not going to show up after three or six months. What you get is now. And what we have, so far as we can count in the now millions of people taking it, is that it's very well tolerated, a whole lot more tolerated than is, uh, is COVID-19 itself. And then, okay, then there's the other one about, I think this is going to be a big one. You've gotten both doses and you get exposed to COVID. They say 28 days, but... Uh, when do we, you know, after your second dose, when are you okay when you get exposed to COVID that you don't need to quarantine or never? 
We don't I know. know at Baptist. Well, I know at, at Baptist, I know our teams, infection control, and our um, human resource experts and physicians are, are rallying together now um, to think about that and pull together what would be the right way to proceed now that we have just this week, we have had um, some employees at some of our entities begin getting their second doses. And so um, the, the time is here, you know, to, to rally together and, and think about that. Dr. Thrillkell, you gave the example earlier of when someone has had COVID-19 that could change their um, exposure plans. And so it would seem reasonable that so too would having the two doses of the vaccine. Yeah, I think I agree. I think that we can count on it on par with the infection. We hope, heck, we hope more, but I think it's hard to say. I think we can count on the fact that the folks at the CDC still have the lights on at 9 p.m. working on this issue right now, uh, and that they'll probably, much as they did with these first questions that we just answered, will be coming out with something on that very soon, really before those 90 days are up since the second, uh, since the early people getting the, the second vaccine. And, you know, over the long term, an important uh, thing that I think people should should count on that's a good thing is that we've been doing these vaccine trials for months. And so people ask, how long and is that effect going to be? This is baked into the trial. So they're still following these people for two and three years. So if we find at 18 months that people that were protected in the vaccine arm start catching up to the placebo arm in terms of the, of the number of actual cases, then that's going to be the cue, obviously, for all of us to consider, uh, or at least for the CDC to consider uh, advising on a, on a booster vaccine. But we'll have plenty of time before some of the early trial participants and those of us who are getting it now would be able to sort of uh, study that. Okay, and I think this is a big one that everybody's out there. You've had both doses of the vaccine. Can you still carry and spread COVID to those who have not had the vaccine? That's a $20 million question. We know. Well, I'll take that one first. Um, I think th this is a very important question. And unfortunately, it's used seemingly by people who don't want to get the vaccine as a reason not to get that get the vaccine, which is, I think, sort of uh, a bit of a, mis you know, a misconstruction of the situation. If you look at the, the problem here is that the Pfizer trials only looked at symptomatic disease. So in addition to the 5% or so of the people who did actually get the symptomatic infection, albeit blunted, not severe, not deadly, um, sure, those people can probably spread it to someone else. But also there may have been people who had subclinical or asymptomatic infection, just as we see in anybody for that matter, uh, who could conceivably spread it. It's, it's not that uh, they're going to encounter it and have a higher likelihood of spreading it. We expect that it would be much lower. And in fact, the Moderna trials looked at that a little bit more clearly and found that there was, uh, if you look at the PCR testing, which really wasn't done in the Pfizer, or they waited for people to develop symptoms to test them, uh, there probably is a reduction in people who are getting asymptomatic infection in addition to just the blunting of the severity of those infections. So we think, yes, it makes you much less likely uh, any kind of immunity is to spreading the virus to someone else, but we're still going to have to wear our masks and so forth until enough people are fully immune to prevent that because sure, there are gonna be people that fail the vaccine, let alone may have asymptomatic infection. And those people we have to consider uh, potentially infectious to somebody else. Jillian, I mean, Rick called, um, you've got to go. I'm not sure if we have time for one more question. Um, Sabrina, you were, oh, Dr. Sullivan, um, steroids and Zithromax being given to ambulatory patients with a diagnosis of COVID-19 and early infection. Do you have any comments on that, Dr. Sullivan? Um, I have a very negative comment about that. Yeah, I think in general, unless antibiotics are indicated for some other reason, we really have um, atypical COVID-19 x-ray findings that really look like a bacterial process, and it certainly can happen. Um, but but we really have a need to have an indication to do that, as we should for any antibiotic um, uh, use, for that matter. And then steroids, I think, are indeed potentially harmful up to and until someone needs uh, needs oxygen, and that kind of becomes a hospitalizable situation uh, in that regard. And, and let me just make one other comment that I, that I didn't do earlier. We, we didn't really talk about the manifestations of the infection. Uh, and our own folks, Athena Hobbs uh, and Ahmad Omar, one of my partners, uh, spent a lot of hours, uh, and I know Jillian helped out with that as well, at, at actually making a publication early on. While some of the folks in you know, New York were really snowed under with this, the folks here spent a, a lot of hours putting together a, a paper that is going to be published 
uh, about some of the characteristics and clinical characteristics of this infection. And that's going to be important, too, as we look at some of the potential neurologic things that are just coming out now. And so the long-term side effects from this, we don't fully understand yet. And they could be sort of scary, and it may bring into a serious negative light those you know, younger folks who said, well, I'm not going to get sick, so I'm just going to go ahead and get it uh, nearly on purpose. And that may have been a very bad idea when you really look forward uh, ahead at some of those things. And it's something we'll have to look for, obviously, over time. I was going to say thank you so much to the both of you. Um, I know there's a few questions we haven't probably answered. I think Sabrina will try to get them out so we can get them answered. Um, this will be is being recorded, so people can um, watch it. Um, Sabrina is singing me, um, but she, she will create a summary page and send it out to everyone here. So thanks again, and um, we look forward to.